Okay. Should, we should start probably. Thank you for coming here. We are very pleased to have Tim Harford tonight here talking about a new book. In particular, the subject of the topic tonight will be how to solve uh, problems in complex environments in this current world. And Tim is a very regular contributor to the Financial Times. He runs writes two regular columns. He has written numerous books. Among the most famous and well-published of these is The Undercover Economist. But tonight we are here about to know more about the most recent book, which is called ADAPT. And that tries to explain, in particular, how do we go upon solving difficult problems in a world that is ever more complex. And the case will be made, or at least that's my take on the book, that uh, we should go further into trial and error when the world becomes complex, that failure when we experiment is a necessary part of this process, but that it is the only way to achieve answers in such a complicated world. I could stay here very long talking about Tim's accomplishments in his short lifespan, but I think you're here not to hear about from me, but to hear from Tim. So I will, with no further ado, let him talk for an hour, and then we will take questions from the audience concerning the presentation. So... Francesca very kindly left, left the book here in case I want to wave it around. Or there if you go. forget. Yeah, if I forget what it looks like. Thank you very much. Um, that's not my first slide. That's better. Okay. Uh, about ten years ago, the uh, cutting edge intellectual, uh, avant-garde American choreographer, Twyla Tharp, decided that she was going to try something completely new. She'd, she'd worked with everybody. She'd worked with Milosh Foreman, the, the director of Amadeus. She'd worked with uh, Mikhail Baryshnikov. She'd worked with Philip Glass, the minimalist composer. And she decided she was going to create a show that was part ballet and uh, part modern dance and part musical and part rock concert. And it was going to be based on the songs of Billy Joel. Uh, you know, uh, Piano Man and Uptown Girl. That, you're all too young to know. <laughs> Check it out on YouTube. It's great. Um, and she, she called Billy Joel and he said, yeah, that's fine. In fact, he, he actually later said, if you get in Twyla Tharp's way, you die. So he was very clear on who had creative control of this uh, project. And so she, she went about setting up the show, recruiting the dancers, the band... Uh, getting an arranger, writing the story around which all of these songs uh, would, would fit, and of course, most importantly, choreographing the show. And in the summer of 2002, the show, Moving Out, premiered on the stage of the Schubert Theatre in Chicago. And it was terrible. <laughs> it's really, really bad. So one reviewer said it was pile-driving and almost embarrassingly naive. Uh, another said um, there are scenes that are at least as silly as anything in Reefer Madness. 
another said it was crazily uneven. Another said there's this one scene where half the audience turn to the other half of the audience and say, what just happened? <laughs> Who just died? Huh? Now, ordinarily, that, that would only be incredibly humiliating. Um, but it was worse uh, on this occasion. Because normally, when a show... Uh, premieres in Chicago, or sometimes Philadelphia, uh, sometimes Boston. It's, it's going to appear on Broadway in about three months. And the idea is to just fix those tiny, tiny little niggles, those last few errors, um, and get it all ironed out before it appears on the New York stage. And there's a, a sort of an informal agreement, which is that what happens in Chicago stays in Chicago. The Chicago Reviews are not published in New York. Uh, the New York press don't go there. Um, but in this case, our Billy Joel's really famous. And the show is really bad. <laughs> and the reviews are really fun to read. <laughs> so the New York press just can't quite contain themselves, and they start reprinting the Chicago reviews. There's one particularly um, juicy review uh, that is reprinted in the New York uh, newspaper Newsday. So now everyone in New York, and in particular every theatre critic in New York, knows that this gigantic turkey is about to flap its way down from Chicago. Mm. We'll, we'll talk more about Twilight Tharp later. Uh, what I want to argue this evening is that all of us, if we actually want to do interesting things, to make a difference to the world, to solve serious and important problems, um, to, to lead interesting lives, uh, whether we're uh, interested in policy, whether we're interested in business, whether we're interested in environmental problems, even military problems. All of us need to put ourselves more in the situation that Twyla Tharp found herself in. We need to risk that incredibly embarrassing, career-destroying public humiliation. Now, I realise this possibly is a hard sell, so <laughs> let, me try and, let me try and build the argument. And exhibit A in my argument is hopefully, ah, yeah, the slides work, even better. Of course, if the slides don't work, given that I'm making a talk about why we should all make mistakes, uh, if the slides don't work, it's fine. But yes, this is Exhibit A. Uh, can anybody tell me what this is? It's a toaster, yeah. It's a very special toaster. It's the cheapest toaster it's possible to buy from Argos. It costs £3.96. <laughs> you can have this toaster for one hour's badly paid work. Now, uh, the toaster is, I think, a very beautiful object, I'm sure you'll agree, and it makes toast, which makes it all the more beautiful. The toaster is interesting because this toaster was the inspiration for a very interesting project uh, conceived of by a design student in London about four years ago, four or five years ago. And his name was Thomas Thwaites. And his idea was uh, the toaster project. What he was going to do was build a toaster from scratch. So you've got to, what you've got to imagine is a design student clad only in his underpants with a screwdriver and he's going to make a toaster. I realise it's possibly difficult to imagine this. Possibly some of you have imagined it and are now finding it difficult to stop. I don't know. 
But that's the, that's the vision, okay? Underpants, screwdriver, toaster. So the first thing Thomas did was to buy this toaster from Argos, £3.96, and take it apart. And he discovered that toaster is a surprisingly complicated thing when you look at it. There are over 400 components and subcomponents in your bottom-of-the-range toaster. And there are all sorts of different uh, materials. So there is, there's mica, which is a slate-like mineral you wrap uh, the toaster heating element around. Uh, there's copper, there's nickel, there's iron, there's plastic. The plastic's really important. Uh, without the plastic, you don't get the beautiful, sleek toaster casing. Also, you get electrocuted, so the plastic's important. <laughs> now, you might think that taking the toaster apart and looking at these 400 components would be intimidating, but um, Thomas is not easily intimidated, and he decided he'd better just get on with it, better just acquire some of these commodities. So he began by looking for iron. That turns out Britain's a post-industrial society. We, you know, we, we make merchant ivory movies and uh, sort of bad financial products, but <laughs> we, don't, we don't really do much of the old iron mining anymore. But Thomas Thwaites did find a museum of iron mining in an old iron mine, and he called them up, and he said... I'm a design student, I'm trying to make a toaster, <laughs> come down. And they said, yeah, sure. Uh, when he got there, he realised there had been um, a misunderstanding. They, they thought that he'd said, I'm a design student and I'm trying to make a poster. <laughs> Actually, when you think about it, it really makes a lot more sense. <laughs> but anyway, that misunderstanding was smoothed out and uh, they gave Thomas a suitcase full of iron ore. And of course... Once you have a suitcase full of iron ore, you can take it back to London and you can get down to the business of smelting it. So to smelt it, what you need is a dustbin, you fill it with barbecue coals and iron ore, and through the back, you punch a leaf blower. Now, back in the day, you would have had this big old medieval leather bellows and you would sort of pump the, the air over the barbecue coals, you know, the oxygen, get everything you know, nice and hot. Um, but this is the 21st century, so Thomas just used a leaf blower, you know, just whoo, switch it on, you're fine. The airflow is going in there. The coal is getting nice and hot. Now, I would say, um, don't try this at home. Uh, for, for a couple of reasons. One is it, it, it's really dangerous. The other is it doesn't work. <laughs> but Thomas was undaunted. He then discovered a recently patented method of smelting iron in a microwave. <laughs> right. I think all you need to know about this is that it's a picture of the second microwave. <laughs> now, you might be thinking at this stage, well, hang on, what about the original dream? We had the underpants, the screwdriver. This guy is using more complex, more expensive, more modern technology to make the toaster than the toaster itself. A leaf blower is more expensive than a toaster. A microwave is more expensive than a toaster. So I confronted him with this accusation. And he said, well, I've realised, Tim, it's really just me naked in a forest somewhere. I could spend my entire life, my whole life, and I still wouldn't have a toaster. I wouldn't even get close. It's just too hard. The problem is too hard. 
I don't want to accuse Thomas of laziness. I mean, he spent nine months and over a thousand pounds, and all of this, all of this different uh, equipment, uh, trying to make the toaster. This is this is toast, by the way. Uh, so, it, w it would be unfair to accuse him ho of taking too many shortcuts, but you know, he did have to take shortcuts. So, nickel he got by buying on eBay commemorative Canadian dollars that are made of nickel. It's not that hard. Um, copper he obtained via electrolys electrolysis from a polluted copper mine in Anglesey. Um, plastic, plastic, we said the plastic's important. Where does plastic come from? Oil, yeah. Where does oil come from? BP. Yeah. They got loads of it. They spill it everywhere. So, <laughs> so Thomas called BP and said, you know, I'm a design student. I'm trying to make a toaster, yada, yada, yada. Uh, I've got my own jug, and I was thinking maybe you could fly me out to an oil rig, and I could get some crude oil. And they said no, something about helicopter safety training or something. I don't know why they were so sensitive about the whole thing, but they, they said no. So then he tried to make plastic from potato starch, which you can do as long as you don't allow it to be eaten by hungry snails. Yeah, schoolboy error. Um, in the end, he, he got his plastic from a, a plastic recycling facility. So, it, you know, he just basically asked for some plastic, but it was used plastic. So, you know, shortcut after shortcut after shortcut, but that's the thing. It's an, it's an almost impossible task. I'm going to show you a picture of the toaster. So... A couple of weeks ago, it was my daughter's birthday, and she asked me, would I please uh, bake her a cake in the shape of a Dalmatian? Which I did. I did. Good dad, me. Now, imagine that instead of asking for a Dalmatian birthday cake, she had asked me for a toaster-shaped birthday cake. And imagine that I'd baked that for her, but that I had been paralytically drunk. <laughs> The question you're probably asking yourselves is, does it make toast? <laughs> so I asked Thomas, and he said, it, it warms bread <laughs> when I plug it into a car battery. <laughs> and I'm not sure what's going to happen when I plug it into the mains. But in the end, he did. I mean, he had a whole, uh, he had a whole ex exhibition of, of this whole project. It's wonderful. He's, he's got a book out, The Toaster Project. Um, and I think after the exhibition was closed, I'm not sure about the details, I think he had a couple of glasses of champagne with some friends, and they, they finally did plug it into the mains to see what would happen. And it immediately burst into flames. <laughs> which rather wonderfully, Thomas says, it is a partial success. <laughs> so, so that's good, that's good. I mean... What do we conclude from the story of the toaster? You see, I, I used to tell stories like this and conclude, and therefore, uh, the market's wonderful. Because you can have that toaster. Remember, one hour, one hour really badly paid, you can have the toaster. Or you can try and make it yourself. Nine months, a thousand pounds, and it still won't work. And it might kill you. So, 
you know, I, I think free market types like to use stories like this as an illustration of the power of the market. And that's, that's fair enough. That's reasonable. The market is an amazing thing. And the ability of the market to coordinate all of these people all across the planet in the production of the, of the toaster, despite the fact that there is nobody in charge of this project, I think is remarkable. So there's a guy driving this gigantic truck around and around this spiral of this open-cast mine, the Chiquicamata mine in Chile. And the truck is loaded with copper ore. And he's a professional guy. He's doing his job. It's a difficult job, skilled job. He doesn't know whether the copper is going to go to telecoms cables in China or to a toaster or to the casing of a bullet. He doesn't know. He doesn't need to know. Uh, It's an amazing decentralized system for turning all kinds of skills all over the world into products and services that we can use. And it's not just the complexity of the individual products and services, it's the complexity of the supply chains. It's the sheer range of the number of products and services. So um, there's, a, there's a guy called Eric Beinhocker, used to be in McKin- at McKinsey, who tried to estimate how many products and services are available in London. And he reckoned, well, nobody knows, but it's an educated guess, He reckons there are 10 billion distinct types of product and service available in the London area. If you you wanted to identify them with barcodes, you would need 10 billion different barcodes. That's an incredible variety. So, yeah, the free market supporters, and I'm kind kind of free marketing myself, um, I think free market fans are right to say "This this is an amazing achievement. But... I don't know about you, but I, I noticed something in the last few years, and possibly I was a bit slow to come to this realisation. But, Will has some problems. <laughs> it's actually not perfect. It took me a while, you know. But I've noticed. We've got wars. We've got uh, insufficient innovation in uh, medical care, in low-energy uh, low infrastructure, in transport... Uh, we've, we've got um, a financial crisis. You, you might have seen. I don't know whether you noticed that, but there is one. Um, we, we've got all, all sorts of different problems to solve and all kinds of different problems, all kinds of different people proposing solutions. And whenever I hear the solutions, these days, I think about the toaster. I think about how incredibly difficult it is to go into this system, this phenomenally complex system that we don't really understand and try and make it better, try and make it work better, try and just fix climate change or fix the financial system, fix our innovation problem. I mean, don't get me wrong, these are things that we need to do. These are problems that we need to solve. But we're not going to solve them by sitting in an armchair or around some committee room table, and thinking really hard with all the experts that we can find because they're just too hard. So, I mean, what does that, t- what does that tell us? What does that imply for problem solving? Well, I would argue that any complex system, complex object, complex institution that works is a system, object, or institution that has developed through a process of trial and error. It's developed through a process of experimentation. I mean, I could, 
I could take the toaster as an example. Actually, yeah, the, to I, the toaster wasn't an example of a, of a heroic failure. The toaster was an example of a brilliant art project. But the toaster itself um, first appeared in the late 19th century. It was called the Eclipse. And it rusted, and it set fire to things, and it, it electrocuted people. And all of the companies that were initially involved in the toaster market got out of the toaster market. Many of them went bankrupt. And after about 40 years, somebody realized, you know what? We could put the toast on the inside. Then people wouldn't die. <laughs> you know, they got there in the end. And, and the, the toaster continues to evolve. And it's not that complicated a problem. And yet, these things always evolve. There's always this process of trial and error. And that's true, clearly true in biological systems. You know, these amazingly complex biological objects have all evolved. Um, they've all developed over millions and millions of years through this Darwinian process of variation and selection. And, of course, another word for variation and selection is trial and error. You try lots of things out, and then uh, some of them don't work. And, uh, you know, we, we call that natural selection. In other words, you know, a lot of stuff dies because the mutation was not very helpful. Um, but it, it also takes place in, um, this trial and error process takes place in non-biological systems. So to give you uh, an example of an industrial context, uh, Unilever. So I, f I first heard about this story from Steve Jones, the geneticist. So Unilever, um, a while back, wanted to uh, create some cool uh, microgranule detergent thing. I don't really know why. I'm not that interested in soap. But... So it was all, you know, all microgranules or microcapsules or something. And the way that they did this was they'd take a big vat of liquid detergent and spray it through a nozzle. And it forms into these little beads or these little flakes or whatever, and that's great. And you put it into a box, and then you can sell it for lots of money at Tesco, and that's great. The, the thing is, the design of the nozzle turned out to be incredibly important. And initially... Um, Unilever did what you would expect to do in that circumstance, which is to say, well, get me the nozzle guy. I want the nozzle guy. I want the world's leading expert in nozzles. And I apologize for the gendered assumption that the world's leading expert in nozzles is a man. You know, that's, that's wrong of me. Um, but anyway, regardless of the sex of the world's leading expert in, in nozzles, um, the world's leading expert in nozzles isn't expert enough to solve this problem. It's too hard really know what's going on inside the nozzle. And then some bright spark at Unilever said, well, we could, of course, evolve a nozzle. And the way you evolve a nozzle is you, you take one, about this big, and it's plastic, and you create random variations. So you make it a bit narrower, or a bit wider, or a bit longer, or you put some bumps in it, some wrinkles... Um, and it starts to look sort of, you know, more and more like some weird erotic object. And then after a while, it starts to look like a chess piece turned on its side. And all the while, you're testing this thing out, and you're taking the variants that work best, and you're using them as seeds for the next generation, and the next generation. And you, you keep iterating, you keep trying new things, you keep creating these entirely random variations. And after about 20 generations, you've got this thing that works many, many times better than the original nozzle. And I'm reliably informed that Unilever have no idea how it works. They, I mean, they, they don't need to know how it works. They just produced it through trial and error. 
Now, if I, if I can go back to this, um, this markets subject again. We are at the London School of Economics. I suppose I should be talking about how markets work a bit. When markets work well, they are mechanisms for producing trial and error. So a uh, substantial percentage of companies go out of business one way or another, um, sometimes at a very high rate. So in America, the rate at which firms disappear, either being bought out or going bankrupt, is about 10% a year. That's a very high failure rate. And that's, that's not during recessions. That's, that's across good times and bad. So these, these ideas that are not working are being filtered out fairly aggressively. And at the same time, there's a constant supply of new ideas in business. And most of the new ideas... I mean, we, we have all this rhetoric about you know, the amazing creativity of the entrepreneur and the superior uh, mind of the businessman versus the politician. Um, but, of course, most of these ideas are really bad ideas. Most of these business ideas don't work. And it's kind of natural that most of these ideas don't work because all the obvious good ideas have been tried. So the only thing that remains is ideas that seem to be not very good ones, but some of them are good nevertheless, so they're surprisingly good. So you've got this constant generation of ideas. Many of them don't work, some of them do, and you've got this failure rate. So this is a process of uh, variation and selection. This is a process of trial and error. And I think it's very important to emphasise that capitalist systems um, don't work despite corporate failure, they work because of corporate failure. There's a very interesting study by uh, Randall Mork, uh, a, a couple of co-authors. Um, they, they have a measure of turnover in various major economies. Uh, and turnover, by which they mean the... Um, they look at the, the top ten employers and they say, well, each year, how likely is it that there'll be, there'll be new companies in this list of top ten employers? Or is it the same ten companies every year? Uh, and in, in countries where the list of top ten employers keeps changing, that's a good predictor of future economic growth. Uh, and it's just a, it's a statistical indicator, but I think it's a very important point that this process of corporate failure is how new ideas are brought to the surface. It goes right back to Schumpeter and creative destruction. Now, I don't want to suggest that, and therefore, markets for everyone... Um, <laughs> that all we really needed in Iraq was just sort of four or five different competing private armies, and we would pretty soon have figured out how to solve that problem. Um, I, I don't want to make that case. What I do want to make, uh, the case I do want to make is to say, we underrate the importance of experimentation and failure in market systems. We overrate business insight. We overrate... The profit motive. And the profit motive is important, business insight is important. But we underrate this sheer blind luck, this sheer experimental process. And we often miss opportunities within large organisations, within hierarchies such as armies, within government, sometimes even within our own lives. We miss opportunities to copy this fundamental process of experimentation. So um, this is why I emphasise the fact that what Twyla Tharp did, that risking this terrible mistake was so fundamentally important. Because if you don't risk making a mistake, you're not going to solve any problems at all. I, I used to work for the World Bank, and uh, uh, my boss there once said, it was an un unusual boss, he was, he was German and told very funny jokes. So he's unusual in a number of ways. Um, <laughs> I apologise to all the Germans in the audience. Um, 
he, uh, yeah, he, he used to say, jokes are no laughing matter in Germany. Um, one of the other things, he, one of the other things he, he did, apart from tell funny jokes, was um, he, he said, look, the World Bank's failure rate uh, is disturbingly low. Disturbingly low. Um, failure rate seems to be about 10%. And the ultimate failure rate of private sector projects is probably about 50%. And the bank is supposed to be doing business in very, very difficult environments. So either what we define as failure uh, is an extremely restrictive definition of failure, and there are lots of things that have failed, but we just won't own up to them. Either that, or we're being incredibly conservative. We aren't taking nearly enough risks. We aren't exploiting nearly enough opportunities to do good for fear that some of them won't work out. So, experimentation is important. The risk of error is important. Um, so I could sort of say, well, okay, and therefore uh, privatise everything, markets for everything. Clearly that doesn't always work. Clearly there are situations where um, that, that's not going to be possible. It's either not going to be politically feasible or it's just not possible at all for, for various reasons. So if, we, if we're in a situation where we can't expect this competitive process to do the experimentation for us, well, we can still experiment. There are all kinds of ways in which we can experiment. But there are also some very powerful organisational, political and psychological barriers to doing that. So I want to take a little bit of time to talk about those. And um, one of the things I'm going to have to do is uh, switch, oh gosh, this is all attached to, brilliant, is switch to this. Oh, magic. Isn't that beautiful? But they've, sneakily, they've moved it along by 17 seconds. So they, they, want, they want me to fail, because then I can rise above it and then and succeed. Um, okay, we're going to give this a try. I'm hoping the sound is on. Uh, we'll see. I'll do an amusing improvised voiceover if the sound doesn't work. <laughs> well, I'll do an improvised voiceover. It may, may or may not be amusing. So, um, get on with it, Tim. I want to talk about one of these barriers to experimentation. And a very important figure in this is the psychologist uh, Solomon Ash. And, of course, being an economist, I can't talk about anything that's happened in psychology for at least 40 years. This has got to be a really old psychologist. Um, and I w I'm going to tell you about Solomon Ash's work. And, um, but before I do, I, discovered, I recently discovered something completely brilliant, which is that exactly 50 years ago, Solomon Ash um, was a consultant to uh, Candid Camera. And they made, a, they made a short film. So I'm going to show you the film. It's two minutes long, and then I'll tell you about Solomon Ash. The gentleman in the elevator now is a candid star. These folks who are entering, the man with the white shirt, the lady with the trench coat, and subsequently one other member of our staff, will face the rear. And you'll see how this man in the trench coat... <laughs> ...tries to maintain his individuality... <laughs> But little by little, <laughs> he looks at his watch, but he's really making an excuse for turning just a little bit more <laughs> to the wall. 
Now we'll try it once again. Here's the candid subject. Here comes the candid camera staff, three of them at least. And uh, this man has apparently been in group. Charlie closes the door. A moment later, we'll open the door. Everybody's changed positions. <laughs> now we'll see if we can use... Now we'll see if we can use group pressure for some good. Now, in a moment, on Charlie's signal, everybody turns forward. There it is. Notice they take off their hats. <laughs> and now, do you think we could reverse the procedure? Watch. So that's Solomon Ash. And uh, he was fascinated by the problem of conformity. So his most famous experiment was conducted in the 1950s. And as with all experiments in those days, it was with male undergraduates. Stanford University, as it happens. So he'd, he'd get together a bunch of these guys, and it might be four or five, there might be 10, 15. He would show them two cards. One had three lines on, A, B, and C. And the second card had uh, something called the reference line. And the three lines, A, B, and C, were all somewhat different lengths. So the question was, which of the three lines, A, B, and C, is the same length as the reference line? This is not a very complicated problem. It's not hard. So Solomon Ash would turn to the first person and say, well, what, what, what do you think? And the answer would be B. And the first person would say, A. A, A, A. A, 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 A. Now, the person at the end of the line is now looking like that first guy in the elevator. He's kind of looking at his watch. He's sort of rubbing his face. He might be muttering under his breath. He might be sweating, showing signs of stress. Um, and when it gets to the last person, although the answer's clearly B, everybody else has said A. And that last person would very often say A. Now, of course, having seen the Candid Camera movie, you know exactly what's going on. All of these people, except the last guy, are actors working for Solomon Ash. So, he was really interested in the fact that you could get people to say something that was clearly not true, simply by showing them that everybody else seemed to believe it. Now, this is a really important problem, especially when you're talking about vaguer, more difficult, more complex challenges. If you're sitting in a, uh, a cabinet meeting, as I'm sure some of you will one day, if you're sitting in a boardroom, sitting anywhere where a group of people are making a decision, it's very difficult to be the one person who sticks his hand up or her hand up and says, actually, I think our current policy 
our current strategy, our current tactics are wrong. I think we, or, or I think they might be wrong. I think we should try something else. I think we should experiment. I think we should risk screwing up. Let's do something different. Even if it's only you know, around the edges, even if it's only a new pilot, even if it's only a, a product mock-up or, or a little experiment, it's very difficult to be the person who sticks out when the pressure of conformity is so great. So Solomon Ash tweaked this experiment, and another way he ran it, again, the answer's B. So you go through, A, 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 B. A, 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 and we get to the person at the end of the line. And now we discover it's not a popularity contest. The person at the end of the line is not interested in being in the majority. They just don't want to be by themselves. And very often, with only one person saying B, with only one person giving the correct answer, the person at the end of the line, the person who's actually being experimented on, would be willing to say B. That's all it took to break the spell of conformity. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, Solomon Ash went, went even further, so he did a, 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 another follow-up. And in this case, he went along the line, and again, the answer's B. A, 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 C. A, 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 A. Now he gets to the end of the line. Nobody has said the right answer. But somebody has said a different wrong answer. <laughs> and it turns out that that's often all it takes to get the last person, the person at the end of the line, to, to speak out and to say what they believe to be true. And in fact, there's a very interesting follow-up experiment by um, psychologist uh, Vernon Levine. So uh, his follow-up experiment, it's a bit different. It, does, it doesn't involve lines and so on, but the same basic idea is there. And before the experiment takes place, the actual victim of the experiment, as opposed to you know, all these actors, the actual person who's being experimented on is in a room filling in a consent form. And somebody walks in with these pair of incredibly thick glasses. They're so thick they look as though they've been specially made out of milk bottle bottoms. <laughs> they have actually been made out of milk bottle bottoms. But he doesn't know that. And the person with these comically thick glasses then bumps into him or her and says, oh, I'm, I'm really sorry, um, my eyesight's incredibly bad. Oh gosh, do we have to fill in a form? Could you please fill in this form for me? I can't really see. So now the experimental victim is filling in this form for, for Mr. Magoo next to him. Can't see anything. He's looking through the inch-thick glasses. And then the experimenter comes in. And... The, the person with the glasses puts his hand up or her hand up and says, excuse me, sir, is this a task that requires visual perception? Because I'm afraid my eyesight is really very poor. And the experiment, this is all in front of the person who's actually going to be experimented on. The experimenter says, um, yeah, yeah, I'm afraid actually it is a task requiring visual perception, but we need ten people to participate, for it to be valid, and, and you're one of the ten people. So I'm afraid you will have to participate, please. And although you can't see, just say something at random. A. A, 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 A. 
the person who cannot see anything and has been ordered to speak at random. C. A, 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 A. We get to the person at the end of the line. What do they say? B. It's all it takes. They have permission to tell the truth. That's all it takes. So if you are ever in a room where it occurs to you that maybe everybody might be making a mistake, that maybe uh, you, know, you should speak out and suggest a different course of action, you should do so for two reasons. Uh, one is, if you even find yourself remotely tempted to do this, it's, it's probably a good idea because the psychological obstacles to doing so are huge. So if you can bring yourself to do so, it, probably your idea is a very good one. Probably it deserves to be heard. But there's a second reason, which is that even if your idea is terrible, there might be somebody else in the room who does have a good idea. <laughs> and it's not until you say something that that person is going to have the courage to speak out. In fact, if, you, if all you do for the rest of your life is go to meetings and say stupid things, you may well justify your existence. I said I'd talk about different psychological barriers to experimentation. So that's one of them. In any big organization, it's hard to break that spell of conformity. Uh, well, I mean, it doesn't take a lot, but to be that person who does it, um, that can be really difficult. So let me give you a second obstacle. And I mentioned earlier that I, I worked for the World Bank. Well, back in the day when I worked for the World Bank, about eight years ago, one of the things that um, was really cool at the time, everyone was excited about it, you know, all the rock stars were excited about it. Laura Bush was excited about it. I mean, she's not a rock star, but, you know, just to clarify. Uh, one of these ideas was, was something called the play pump. And the play pump is uh, a, a children's merry-go-round. But what you do is you, you go to a village where they have a, a borehole to access clean water. And you take out the hand pump that they've been using, and you replace it with this merry-go-round. You also install a raised storage tank. And the storage tank has corporate advertising on it. So the whole thing is paid for by, by advertising, so it's free. And what happens is the children are delighted to have this play equipment. I mean, you're often talking about very poor communities. They don't have this kind of stuff. So they play on the merry-go-round. And as they play on the merry-go-round, that pumps water. And the water goes into the storage tank. And then when the women of the village come to collect the water, because it always is the women of the village... Instead of having to pump with this hand pump, pump their own water, they just go to the storage tank and they just turn on a tap. It's brilliant. So we were, we were very excited about this kind of thing. And initially, it was rolled out in um, townships in South Africa. And it seemed to be going pretty well. The interesting thing about townships in South Africa, we now realise, is they have a very high population density. There are lots of children to play on these merry-go-rounds and to pump this water. And there are lots of grown-ups to see the adverts. So the advertisers will be willing to pay. Now, when the idea came to maybe install this kind of thing in, say, Malawi, now Malawi is much lower population density. You're going to put this in a village in Malawi. No advertiser is going to pay for it. But that's okay. The world is full of uh, very generous people, um, people who donate money directly, but also governments who tax their citizens and, and donate money, um, who are willing to pay for this kind of thing. So you use donor money. 
and you install this thing. And who's going to argue when you whip out the hand pump and you install the play pump? This sort of this, you know, this just donor helicopter thing comes in and does it. The question is, how do you discover whether it's a good idea? Well, what you do is you send a photographer, so especially if it's privately donated, because you want to take photographs of all the cute little kids from Malawi playing on the merry-go-round. You can show them to your donors and say, look at this wonderful thing that you, you uh, made possible. So that a photographer shows up with this gigantic camera and nobody's on the merry-go-round. But all the little kids see the guy with the camera and they all jump on the merry-go-round and they go round and round and round with these big smiles and they're so happy. And the photographer takes these great you know, motion-blurred pictures of all these children playing on the merry-go-round and sends the, the photographs back to the donors and the donors are very, very happy. The trouble is, mostly, there aren't any children playing on the merry-go-round. There just aren't that many children. And so what happens is, when the women of the village come to pump the water, <laughs> you've got two problems. One is, a hand pump's actually pretty efficient. You try doing it with a merry-go-round, it's not that easy. <laughs> and your second problem is, the whole thing is being pumped, because it's supposed to take place on a time delay, it's being pumped up into this big tank. And then immediately down again, because you're pumping the water that you're using right, right now. So this makes it much less efficient. How are the donors going to find out? It was worth a try. It was an experiment. It was a risk of failure. It was worth doing. It did fail. It was a bad idea. How do you then find out it was a bad idea? The feedback loop is completely broken. And in fact, we only figured out that this was a bad plan. At least it was bad in somewhere like rural Malawi because a Canadian engineer called Owen Scott arrived in Malawi. He was working for Engineers Without Borders. And he could immediately see what the problem was, because he was right there. And he had a, a video camera, and a phone, and a blog, access to social media. So he did various stunts, like he would, um, he would do these demonstrations, where you'd get a hand pump and a play pump, and you'd... You know, you'd have, you'd have the local woman just sort of pumping water. It would take about 25 seconds to fill a bucket. And then you'd have Owen on video just going around and around and around for minute after minute after minute, looking like a complete idiot, failing to pump water. Or interviews with local teachers saying, please, stop sending the play pumps. They are causing real trouble for Malawi. Please stop. And that was the moment when the donors realised, hmm, could be time for a course correction. So in the end, I, I'd, I'd say that's, that's a success story. But feedback loops are extremely important. If you're going to experiment, you need to know whether your experiment is working. And it can be really difficult to do this. It's particularly difficult in the aid industry because there's such a long chain between the person who's giving the money and the person who's receiving the stuff at the end of it. But it's not just the aid industry. The army... The, the private, is the private going to tell the general that the strategy screwed up? And one general I interviewed for the book said, well, actually we learn from our mistakes really quickly on the ground because if you make mistakes, people die. So you learn very fast. It's just the upper echelons of the army don't learn nearly as quickly. The stakes aren't so high. The feedback loops aren't there. Um, in medicine, we've invented this tremendous... Uh, set of institutions around randomised trials, around double-blind randomised trials, trial registers, peer review. And it, it's still imperfect, but it's better than nothing. And we need all of this stuff because it's so easy to fool yourself that your experiment was a success when, in fact, it was a failure. 
And, I mean, the, the easiest way, the easiest thing of all is just to say, well, here's a problem. I will implement my favoured policy. Oh, look, the problem got better. Well, you know, a lot of problems do get better. It's called, called uh, regression to the mean. Um, lots of problems fix themselves. Doesn't mean that it was your policy. If you didn't do a proper trial, you don't know. So these feedback loops are incredibly important, and that's, that's a second obstacle to successful experimentation. A uh, third obstacle is what happens when everything happens all too quickly, when you get chain reactions, when systems spiral out of control, where it, it's, it's all happening too fast to fix your mistakes. A nuclear power station or a, a financial system. Now, I talked about this at great length in a lecture at the LSE about a year and a half ago, so I'm not going to say anything about it. You look at the old lecture. It's great. It's not that funny. Everybody dies in the lecture. But, well, I mean, not the audience, but it's very bad things happen. Um, but that's a, that's a third obstacle that needs to be recognized. And I, I talk about it in the lecture. I talk about it in the book. And the fourth obstacle, and this is the, the last one I want to talk about. The fourth obstacle is just, it, it's us. It's our willingness to take these risks and our willingness to respond sensibly when the risks don't pay off. So one of the earliest findings in behavioral economics, was, which, as I'm sure you all know, is this sort of the bastard love child of economics and psychology. Um, one of the earliest findings in behavioral economics is this thing called loss aversion. And uh, loss aversion is a disproportionate anxiety about what might actually be quite small losses. And very often, uh, you will see people doing stupid things to try to turn a small loss into not a loss at all. And of course, that might well turn the small loss into a very big loss. Now, in researching the book, I, I, I really tried to leave no stone unturned. And this, this is how far I went. I, I went to the studios of Deal or No Deal, and I interviewed Noel Edmonds what it takes sometimes to write a book about economics. Um, the reason Deal or No Deal is interesting is because it's a game show where people make high-stakes decisions uh, under conditions of risk. And because it's an internationally syndicated game show and because it, it's completely interminable and the rules are always basically the same, you can study how people play in this game show. And you can get statistically robust conclusions out of this kind of study. So uh, Steve Levitt, um, famous, the free economics guy, famously studied The Weakest Link. Uh, Richard Thaler, the co-author of Nudge, studied Deal or No Deal. Now, obviously you're students, so you don't, you don't watch daytime television, right? Okay. So just in case, and some of you may not be students. So um, just to be clear about the rules of Deal or No Deal because I'm assuming nobody has watched it. Um, the way it works, it varies a little from place to place, but the, the basic way it works is you've got a bunch of boxes, maybe 22, 24 boxes, and each box has some cash in it. And the amount of cash uh, it varies a lot, and it's highly skewed. So most of the boxes have you know, £10, £25, £50, £100, maybe pennies, Maybe it may be £1,000 or £2,000, but, but not, not huge, not life-changing sums of money. And then a few boxes have £25,000, £50,000, £100,000, £250,000, re you know, real chunks of cash. And the player has one of these boxes, 
and has no idea which of these sums of money is in the box. And she will, over time, choose other boxes, and those boxes will be opened and discarded. So if she chooses a box and it's got £250,000 in, that's really bad news, because it means her box does not have £250,000 in. If she chooses a box and it's got 10 pence in, that's really good news, because it means her box does not have 10 pence in. So, you know, players play this game, and we draw conclusions about how we respond to risks and how we respond to losses. My favourite player of Deal or No Deal of all time is a guy called Frank. And he was a player in the original Dutch version of the game, and he'd played for a bit, and he had five boxes left. One of them had the jackpot, which is half a million euros in the Dutch version. And the others had not a lot. The banker phoned, oh, I forgot to tell you about the banker. So brilliantly, brilliantly, Deal or No Deal, before the financial crisis, Deal or No Deal invented this character called the banker, who's a complete arse. Everybody hates him. <laughs> so I thought it was very forward thinking. Um, so the banker will call on the Bakerlite telephone and will say, uh, will, will say, I will offer you money to stop playing. Effectively, I'll offer you money for whatever's in your box. And the banker doesn't know what's in your box. You don't know what's in your box. But the banker will make the offer, and you have to decide. And that's why the, the game is called Deal or No Deal. So the banker calls Frank. Frank's got four boxes of not a lot and one box of half a million euros. So you can do the maths. The expected value of the game is more than 100,000 euros, but maybe not that much more. The banker offers Frank 85,000 euros to stop. And Frank thinks about it, and Frank decides he's feeling lucky, and he says no. Okay, that's fine. That's, that's a bit of a, you know, he's not very risk-averse, clearly, Frank. He's not very risk-averse, but that's, it's not a wrong decision. At least, you know, not at the time. With hindsight, it looks a bit different. Because the next box that Frank opened contained 500,000 euros. So the banker phones Frank back and says, thanks for the bailout. My new offer is 2,500 euros. Now, if Frank had been thinking completely rationally about this, he would have said to himself, there's actually really not a lot in the four remaining boxes. 2,500 euros is a pretty decent deal. Objectively speaking, it's a better deal relative to the value of continuing to play the game. It's a better deal than the 85,000 euros was. But that's not what Frank's thinking. Frank's thinking two things. Frank's thinking, I hate the banker. <laughs> and Frank's also thinking, I hate myself. I hate myself. That's the stupid decision I made. And he's, he's lost it. He's no longer able to rationally evaluate what he should do now, having made this mistake. He tried something, it didn't work, what does he do now? He's just seeing red. And we see the same behaviour, this has been studied in poker players, same thing in poker players. This has been studied in stock market investors, same thing in stock market investors. The same behaviour you see in, in, in anybody in an institution, a manager with a new product line, a politician with a new policy, and it's failing, 
and it's failing, so they're just going to push it harder and throw more weight behind it and more money behind it. And obviously, nobody has ever had a relationship like this, but, you know, I raise it as a theoretical risk that that might also happen, that in refusing to acknowledge that it's failed, you just redouble the pain. So Frank says no. And he says no, he says no, and eventually he has just two boxes. One has 10 euros and one has 10,000 euros. And the banker offers him 6,000 euros to please stop. And Frank says no. And Frank leaves the game with 10 euros. And it turns out, according to Richard Thaler's statistical analysis, Frank's behavior is actually pretty typical. This is how people re react when they've made a call, they've turned down a deal, and they opened a big value box, and the banker's offer fell. Suddenly, they get very aggressive, very risk-loving, very stupid. And that's a real challenge. It's a challenge to my view of how we should solve problems. Because if, if we go off the rails every time we made a mistake, this trial and error process isn't going to work. So that those, those are the four obstacles I, I, I wanted to consider. Conformity, the lack of willingness to try something new. Feedback, lack of information about whether something's actually working or not. Certain systems where experimentation is very dangerous, like finan the financial system. And our own inability to act rationally immediately after taking a loss. But we still have to do it. We still have to do it, because there is no other way to solve problems in a complex world other than to experiment. So we've got to get over these four barriers, one way or another. We've got to demand that our politicians get over them, our business leaders get over them, and we've got to get over them ourselves. I told you I was going to come back to Twyla Tharp. So the morning after the show, Twyla sat down with Jennifer Tipton, who's a very old friend, lighting designer, and they sat with all of the reviews, orange juice, coffee. And Jennifer gestured at the reviews. And she looked Twyla right in the eye. And she said, you know they're right. It's a very difficult thing to say to a friend. Everybody who says what you've created is terrible, they're right. And it's also a very difficult thing to be the person who asks for that direct feedback. We don't usually ask for feedback. We usually ask for a pat on the back. We usually ask for reassurance. We don't actually ask for somebody to, to tell us what it is that we've done wrong and what it is that needs fixing. And having got that absolutely clear feedback, Twyla then tried to, to suck the emotion out of the situation so, and really analyse what had gone wrong. And she asked another friend to go through all of the reviews and just objectively pick out the points of criticism, to put them all on a spreadsheet. Just specifically, what is it that people are worried about? Why don't they like this, this musical? What's the problem? And where do people agree? Where, where do all the critics say there's a problem? Because that's clearly what I've got to fix. And she then had to go back to her investors who were asking, where's their $8 million going? She had to go back to her musicians and say, you know, I put you in the middle of the stage. It's visually cluttered. It's confusing. You're going to be off stage. No one's going to see you. Yeah, you'll love that. 
-hmm. She had to go to some of her dancers and say, you know that role that I scripted for you? It's too complicated. You're sacked. You're not going to be in the show. It's not your fault. It's my fault. Sorry. Bye. And then to get her other dancers to, to, work, on, to work on new dances, to work on new moves, new plot. All the while performing in Chicago on the stage every night, this, pr this show that everyone hates, to these dwindling audiences. And then to get up early in the morning and then rehearse this completely different show. Just incredibly difficult to keep all that together, to keep that on the road. Just a few weeks later, Moving Out opened in New York. All of the New York critics looking forward to reviewing it. The New York Times said, the show is a shimmering portrait of an American generation. Another critic said, it's a blast. Another critic said, it's in a different league. Another one was just trying to find words to describe how she'd merge contemporary dance and rock music, and the fans were completely awed by the scale of her achievement. And Moving Out ran for years, and it won a Tony Award for Twyla Tharp's choreography. Uh, my favourite review was written by the Chicago reviewer who first penned that really, real stinker that was syndicated in New York, and he'd actually been flown down by the New York press to write an updated version. And he, he wrote this review, and he said... And it's amazing. Uh, it, it's unprecedented to see such a terrible show turned into such a good one. And while praising the show, he also raised a question which I think really sticks with me. He just wrote, how did this happen? How did this happen? And that, to me, is one of the most important questions of all. Because if we want to do anything important, if we want to solve any important problems, it's going to involve this process of risking, make, risking mistakes and making mistakes and then fixing our mistakes. And if we don't show an interest in how mistakes are corrected, we're not really showing an interest in solving problems at all. Thanks very much for listening. So we'll continue by asking some questions about his talk to Tim, and we, there will be microphones be taken around. We'll take three questions at a time, and if you don't mind, I can put one to begin with. Sure, sure, please do. But pe people who are leaving early, I should just say that my favourite local independent bookshop, not Amazon is selling copies of the book outside. And you would do me a personal favour if you would buy some books from them, not necessarily my books, just any books. They're brilliant. Pages of Hackney. Thanks. Excellent. So, my question is, so if it is random experimentation, the important thing, it seems that in one of your leading examples, it was the expert critique at the end when we talk about this moving out show that actually led... The author to ex it's true that before it was a random creation, but it was in some sense expert advice that pushed the experimentation into something full. So how is it that we really experiment? To which extent should we care about external advice? Sure. So that that's uh, I think a very important question, and it de it depends on how fast moving the problem space is. It depends on how much is known. Um, 
I mean, all I would say is that you, you're in a very bad situation if all you can do is create purely random mutations. Even Unilever, they knew they had to have a nozzle. They didn't start with a, you know, block a cube or something with no hole in it and try and evolve from there. They knew they had to, they were, they knew what they were basically trying to do. So where you start and which directions you take your experiments, I think, will be informed by expertise. But I just uh, constantly caution that we, we tend to overrate expertise. And that's why I'm pushing this idea of experimentation so hard. So just to give you two very quick examples, if you look at um, the patterns of corporate failure, Paul Ormerod, in his book, Why Most Things Fail, which is a wonderful book, um, shows that you can... You, there, are, there are mathematical models that will, will duplicate the, the power law distribution of, um, failure, of extinctions, biological extinctions, which we know, are, we know that's a blind process, okay? We know there's nobody sort of saying, you know, what gets extinct now and, and what doesn't. Um, so the question is, well, do we see a similar process in um, corporate extinctions? Uh, well, we don't know about the process, but we know that the, the distribution is the same. We've got the same power law distribution. And then when you try and tweak models, so you've got this, these, these mathematical models that are very blind and completely unguided, completely random. When you tweak them and try and say, well, you know, what if, you, what, what if there was some role for expertise, you know, what about Steve Jobs and so on? And, and you, you, you try and tweak them. Um, you can do that, and that's fine. But you get uh, mathematical outcomes that don't look anything like reality. Now, I mean, I don't mean to say that's a knockdown argument that expertise is useless, but it sort of, it, it sort of creates uh, food for thought. And to, to come with a, a specific example, um, I, I study the counterinsurgency process, the surge in Iraq in the book. And... Some of the people who were involved in that said, well, look, you know, it wasn't an experimental thing. Um, you know, we knew what to do. It was just a case of finally the top brass getting around to doing it. But that doesn't really add up. There were very, very impressive people with tremendously deep local expertise. Uh, I'm thinking particularly of General Abizade. He's a very important uh, guy in uh, the prosecution of the war in Iraq. He didn't think it was a good idea, but he was, he was in charge early on once it had actually happened. Um, and his strategy was completely different to the strategy that have, if eventually worked. And I think from the point of view of a layman, you'd be hard put to say, well, Abizade clearly didn't know what he was talking about. He was expert. There were other experts. They disagreed. The only way to, to actually figure out what worked was this extremely tragic and very bloody process of experimentation. Further questions? Yes. Michael Climes, uh, Gigi Press. Thank you very much. Um, I guess from your sort of thesis, you perhaps say that we're imperfect and we have to keep um, experimenting to get ahead in uh, knowledge. Um, one of my sort of intellectual heroes is Leszek Kolakowski, the Polish philosopher, and his magisterial three-volume main currents of Marxism, where he takes on uh, Marxism. And um, he comes to the conclusion that a fundamental problem with socialism is that it, there's this idea of this, or communism, of this perfect man, that society is permanently malleable. And then in a collection of essays in 1990 called Modernity and Endless Trial, he goes into the Enlightenment and he goes into critiquing maybe the sort of postmodernism where he says that in a kind of socialist or even liberal sort of technocratic central um, planning, 
um, you know, we've got all the um, information, but from your suggestion, we have systematic failures, and you just said the experts don't always know any, anything, which perhaps maybe goes against a kind of technocratic, expert-like thing, but yet we're not perfect. We do live, uh, we, we will always live in a floor world, but then we need to experiment, and we, you know, in order to get somewhere. So my question to you is, um, it's maybe a very, very big one, but we need to, ex we need to experiment to get ahead in progress, knowing the fact that, you know, we're not perfect, we're not going to get heaven on earth. But then you talked about the utility of the cost. I mean, if we make mistakes all the time, um, you know, we've got, you know, it's a real problem. So we need to experiment, but then perhaps maybe you can experiment too much. And, and Kolakowski brings up this point about... Um, about I'm, of, I'm conscious that there are other people with questions, sorry. <laughs> that, thank you. Thank you. I'll try and make... The, well, I think the question is very simple. I wonder if your example about Twyla Tharp was really very accurate, because while she was rehearsing in her mind and with the uh, actors some completely new solution or system, the real system was being enacted every night in Chicago and coming to a terrible failure. Now, this is the kind of thing we can't do for real. If we are in the middle of such a failure... We cannot say, well, we'll shut it down at a certain point, and by then I would have worked out a real one. Mm -hmm. What you have to do is live with the real one, and I wonder if your example has really shown us how to deal with it. Yeah, okay. Uh, so going back to toasters, um, I'm a bit nervous because you mentioned that all the corporates involved in development went bust. So, therefore, what incentive is there for a rational business to risk its research and development budget on taking random experiments? I think there are probably externalities involved, and I wondered if you saw a role for government in helping to subsidise R&D. Yeah. Okay. Um, thank, thank you very much. All, all great questions. Um, so, I mean, on, on the question of, of whether it's worth it, I mean, this actually sort of, uh, these two questions are slightly tied together. So... Um, there is, a, there is a risk that on an individual basis it's not worth it um, to experiment because there's a huge, there, there are huge externalities. Um, and I think there is sometimes a very important role for government. I mean, the interesting thing... So let's think about what the role for government is. So one of the things you might want to do is um, limit the way... Uh, limit the downside risk to an entrepreneur who starts a business and then it fails. So you might, you might want to have some sort of limited liability company, for instance. Oh, well, we've got that. That's good. That's very important. Um, we might want to have a welfare state to support people who, you know, in between their experiments. Well, we've got that. That's important. Um, there are other... Uh, I mean, there are a number of implicit R&D subsidies, for, for instance, the existence of the university system, that, which is great. Uh, I think I'm safe in saying that here. Um, obviously, you should be subsidising much, much more, more money for universities. Um, now... Um, I mean, one can, get, one can get more specific as well about, about the kinds of subsidies you would give to, in, to innovation. Um, and I, I discussed this in some detail in um, Chapter 2, I think, of the book. And there are some interesting ways in which you could do it. There are systems of grants. Um, the patent system, I think, is quite flawed. I wouldn't want it scrapped, but I think it needs radical reform. But we, we could use innovation prizes as well, which we're not, we're not really doing seriously at the moment. Uh, and we could, and I think that would be very helpful. Um, I mean, to, 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 to go back to this question in general about how much should we experiment, 
Um, it depends on the downside risk and the upside risk. I want uh, Google to experiment a lot more than I want Ford to experiment. You know, I don't want Ford to be releasing cars and saying, well, the brakes don't work, we'll fix it in, in you know, the alpha, in the sort of the beta release, or, you know, the, we'll patch it. Um, so it, a lot depends on the kind of system you have. Um, uh, and, but then, then this comes to this gentleman's question here, and I think this is really important. So you've always got to be willing to fix mistakes. I mean, clearly, there's no point in saying, well, we're just not going to fix this mistake because, because we're not. I, 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 often people, well, that wasn't what you said, I know. But cl so clearly, we, we want to fix mistakes. But then the question is, well, at what point, given the mistakes are inevitable, because they are, where, where do you want to make them? Now, Twyla Tharp comments herself. She said, the best mistakes you can make are private mistakes. So she, in, in, the, in the privacy of your own room, no one's watching. That's the best kind of mistake you can make. She gets up every morning, 5.30, rehearses for three hours with a, with a younger dancer. She's now about 70. She used to do it by herself. Um, and they videotape everything. And they do this thing she calls scratching. So you're improvising, just looking for different moves. And she says, if you've got 30 seconds of successful material out of three hours of improvisation, you're ahead. Okay? Because the cost of failure is very low. And the benefits of that 30 seconds is very high. C clearly, by the time you're on stage in Chicago, you've left it a bit late. Uh, and I think you're absolutely right to suggest maybe she should have got better advice earlier. Maybe she should have fixed the problem earlier. But it, you know, it's never too late to fix the problem. If you can make it much earlier, run a, run a small controlled trial, run a pilot, you're clearly going to be in a, in a much better situation. Hi, uh, Jim Maltby. I'm a government scientist. Um, my question is, do we need to change the way we educate people at a lower level or in university to enable us to take this approach? And is it just confined to a Western mindset, or is it kind of global? Um, Richard Goldstein. Uh, two things. When society becomes more and more complex and everything starts interacting with everything else, the probability that a mutation will be deleterious increases, you know, because you have a much rougher fitness landscape or such. So it would seem that as society becomes complicated, the ability to innovate um, randomly would decrease. The other thing is that as society becomes more complicated, it becomes harder to estimate risks. So someone comes up with an idea of why don't we have micro-trading on the stock exchange without being able to, um, to determine exactly what the risks could be or even order of magnitude. So the question is, as society becomes more complicated and, and these interactions grow, how do we deal with these two issues? Well, thank you very much. Yes, certainly the conformity and um, risk aversion do come in the way of, of creativity. But you're not going to tell me that uh, there is no difference between a person who is 99% times failure and the one who is only 5% times failure. There is a difference. And what is it that determines this, that, that explains that difference? Uh, I suspect it is 
our ability to solve problems, and the, I think it is our ability to think really, which determines that how successful we are, how, how often we are successful. So I think when we are looking for, um, I'm sorry, but I must say this. <coughs> when we are looking to improve our problem-solving ability, I think what we need to do is improve our thinking ability. And uh, I think I should look at, somebody should try and see how can we improve our thinking ability. Can, can you suggest anything that will help to improve one's thinking ability? Thank you. Thank you very much. So actually the, 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 the third question and the first question are, are connected because this is, I think, about the education system. I'm very interested in um, the research of Carol Dweck. So she's, a, she's a psychologist and she's done quite a bit of work on um, uh, getting people to risk failure, encouraging people to risk failure and encouraging people to consider the possibility of improvement. So she's got this idea of the growth mindset versus the fixed mindset. So one of her most famous experiments was she got a bunch of kids to solve some problems. And half of them were told, this is totally random, half of them were told, oh, you, you, you did very well, you must be very smart. And the other half were told, oh, you, you did very well, you must have worked very hard. Um, and there's a, there's a huge, and, and then they were given diff, more difficult problems. And the ones who were told, oh, you did very well, you must have worked very hard, uh, were much happier to engage with these harder problems. It was like, well, these are, these are problems are harder, therefore I must work harder, uh, I mustn't be afraid of them. Um, so I think there's a sort of failure, an acceptance of the risk of failure. The kids who were told, you must be very smart, uh, when they encounter problems that they couldn't solve, seem to draw the conclusion that they, they must therefore be very stupid. And they stopped, try, they stopped trying, they withdrew from these problems. And then later, so they did worse, and then later when they were told afterwards, would you like another book of these problems to take home? The kids who had been praised for their hard work um, were, were very happy to take, the, take these home. So, uh, I mean, there's, there's so much in Dweck's work, and I'm, I'm oversimplifying it, but I think it, it's very important to be teaching children not only be smart, not only go out there and find the right answer, but also there is the possibility of growth. Try this stuff. If you try stuff you can't do, uh, that's the only way that you will learn to do it. If you always constantly avoid stuff that you can't do, you, you, know, you are never going to improve uh, your understanding. You're never going to improve your thinking. Uh, so that's very important. It's slightly unfortunate that, I think quite naturally in our education system, we have a situation where there are right answers and there's a person in the corner of the room who has a list of the right answers and they're an authority figure. And it's, it's natural. I mean, I don't want to criticize and say, well, you know, we should teach kind of everybody that maths is all relative, man, and, you know, there's no... I don't mean that, but I think... I think it is a little unfortunate because it's a very poor proxy for many real-world problems where there are no obvious right answers and there's certainly no authority figure who knows the answers. So we need to be careful about that. And as for the Eastern versus Western mindset, I'm very cautious about generalizing, but I've been told by a number of people that um, Oriental cultures are uh, risk-averse, they're afraid of failure. I do remember seeing some of Dweck's research saying Japanese kids are far happier to stand at the blackboard for 40 minutes failing to solve a maths problem while their classmates offer helpful suggestions and they all try and figure it out together. So uh, I, I, I haven't studied closely the, the cultural elements, but I'm, I'm wary of uh, sort of uh, broad brush conclusions. Gentlemen at the back, this probably should be our last question, shouldn't it? 
Um, sorry, I see people, these are potential book buyers are leaving the hall. Um, Don't leave without a bag. Yeah, no, it's not allowed. Okay, I want bouncers. Um, you can have a signature if you wait. I, th I, think, I think this is a very important point, and this is particularly relevant to, not only relevant to, but particularly relevant to our financial system. And when I discuss how we regulate the financial system, I think the, the key thing that we have to bear in mind is um, by the time the financial innovation is out there in the wild, it's potentially too late because all these institutions are far too interconnected, far too big to fail, far too fragile. Uh, and we should be learning lessons from engineering and from the psychology of organizational behavior. The, the guys who basically stop nuclear power stations blowing up and stop oil rigs blowing up who I talked to at some length for the book, and they're very interested in simplifying systems for their own sake, decoupling systems for their own sake, and sometimes that is appropriate. Even if, from as a purely technocratic point of view, we say, well, I don't, I don't see why it's helpful to make this simpler. I don't see why it's helpful to separate out these two businesses. Sometimes it just is, and an engineer would instinctively make that judgment call where an accountant, lawyer, economist in financial regulation might not quite see the point. Anything more? This gentleman's been very keen. Yes. We keep him for last. <laughs> it's my privilege to meet you. Um, I'm trying to summarize what you say uh, from the beginning. I'm saying like toastum refers to the problems that are too hard to solve. And expertise are sometimes um, not that working, so we experiment by trial and error. And here comes a question like, um, economics is not like natural science where you can see the direct result of your get. Sometimes experiments being carried out, but there was no obvious failure. Like the 2008 financial crisis, in my understanding, at the, at the start, the, the banks think it works really well of putting all the risks interconnected with each other. Yeah. And so that's, they think it's a success rather than a failure. And at last, a large, a largest failure came out. So that's my first question. And the second question is for, even if the experiment carried out, we can't avoid systematic failure. Uh, the financial crisis being like every 50 years, every 20 years uh, being um, restarted again. Yeah. So it's already not being averted. And um, another point to mention is that <laughs> I heard yeah. like a famous. Sorry, I, I, feel yeah. two, I feel two questions is enough. Yeah. Thank and you. Sorry. And the third one is like emphasizing the <laughs> yeah, point. Because someone is saying. Uh, Especially like, if the third question is yeah. to emphasize the first two questions. Can I try and get. Because they're yes, very good yes, questions. Yes. So can I try and address this? Yeah, so okay. I, think, I think. Thank you. Um, I think the, the second question is very similar to what this gentleman asked about the, about the systemic risk. Um, it's absolutely an issue. I don't think that the solution to systemic risk is to say, and therefore we must design a perfect system. Yeah, I mean, the fact that errors can be very, very dangerous, the fact that errors can have systemic consequences, recognizing that doesn't make the errors go away. So we just need to be much more clever about recognizing that these, these mistakes are inevitable. How do we detect them really early? I talk, for instance, I talk in the book about whistleblowers, the importance of whistleblowers in detecting early errors or creating robust structures 
so that when the error, the error happens, it can be contained. Um, and as for your first point, yeah, this is social science. This is really tough. We don't always know whether an experiment has succeeded. It could be decades before we find out whether an experiment has succeeded. Um, we're trying, I mean, in this respect, it's similar to medicine. I mean, there are, there are medical procedures we've been doing for decades and then suddenly go, oops, we've been killing hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, if only we'd done a more robust experiment earlier. Um, so this is the point I was making about the feedback loops. It, it's absolutely a difficulty, um, but you know, we can't just shrug our shoulders and say, and therefore we shouldn't experiment, uh, because the alternative, which is some central committee, as this gentleman at the back was talking about, just trying to figure it all out from first principles, it, it, it won't ever work. It never has worked in the past. Um, so I, I hope that you've tolerated my... Uh, attempts to experiment uh, and potentially risk failure. Um, I, I've had a lot of fun. Um, thank you for the very smart questions. Sorry for the people who didn't get to ask a question or who didn't get to ask their third question uh, <laughs> or, the, or the third you know, part of their question, but um, it's been terrific. Thank you very much for listening.